In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. There are many simple pleasures we've lost to this pandemic. And this one may not be the most important of them, but it is one of the most human. That feeling of being together in a huge crowd, all of us celebrating, all of us caught up in the same moment. Tomorrow, for some fans, that's coming back. It has been a long, long time, almost three years, since Toronto Raptors fans jammed themselves into Jurassic Park in downtown Toronto, thousands of them living and dying with the championship team. When the square opens up this weekend for fans to watch the Raptors kick off their series against the Philadelphia 76ers, the team on the court will mirror what their fans in the square have been through. Since their 2019 NBA title, the Raptors struggled to keep it together, to keep up a sense of what is normal for them in the face of extraordinary circumstances. They hung on to their championship aspirations for dear life. But that's it. That's it. That's a ball game. The Boston Celtics hang on to win game seven. And then, despite their best efforts, they watched that vanish. And they found themselves, like so many of us, far from normal, in an unlikely and humbling position. With the fourth pick in the 2021 NBA Draft, the Toronto Raptors select Scotty Barnes. But hope is eternal. And so, it turns out, is the Raptors' penchant for finding stars in the draft. Rebound out to Barnes. It's a foot race. Oh, my! So now the Raps and their fans are back together. Does this signal the end of everything that they and us have been through? No. But maybe it is the beginning of the end. If not for the pandemic, then at least, hopefully, for the Sixers. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. William Liu is the host of the Raptors show on Sportsnet, the Fan 590. He also writes for Sportsnet.ca. Hey, Will. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us. It's nice to have uh, something exciting to talk about in a happy sense. Yeah, definitely. Look, I'm I'm really happy you're giving me an opportunity to talk about the Toronto Raptors because I definitely don't get a chance to do that <laughs> every day. <laughs> but I don't get a chance to do it every day. That's the most important thing. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Why don't you take me back? This has been a long time. When was actually the last time that Jurassic Park was open and packed with fans in the city of Toronto watched a Raptors game outside together? If I'm not mistaken, there has to be game five, 2019, where the Raptors were playing 
the uh, Golden State Warriors in the finals with a chance to clinch the championship. They didn't get it done that night, but uh, they went back out to Oakland and uh, they they secured the title. But that's a long time. That's over a thousand days ago now. And and it feels longer than that. Yeah, it definitely does. And um, I think uh, for people who will be either in attendance at the games or in Jurassic Park, you're looking at a team like the Raptors who, because of the pandemic last year, had to relocate the entire organization down to Tampa Bay. And, you know, their staffers are given two weeks notice to move their entire families down there. And a lot of hard choices were made. And last year was uh, very out of character for Toronto for multiple reasons, starting with the fact that they weren't even in Toronto. So this will be a really great celebration to uh, to get everyone back in one spot and to celebrate this team, which has been one of the best stories in the NBA this season. No doubt. And we'll talk about that long uh, journey in the wilderness. But first, yeah, 2019, more than a thousand days ago. How different is the Raptors team that will face the Philadelphia 76ers on Saturday from that team that beat Golden State and won it all? I mean, it's funny. You could even go back to the team that beat Philadelphia as part of that playoff run back in 2019. And right. if you think about it, the NBA changes quite a bit, even in a very a short amount of time in terms of like, you know, three seasons here, there are, in terms of the players who actually see time on the floor, not the guys who just sit on the, uh, who sit on the bench and, you know, practice, but generally don't factor into playoff games. There are only four holdovers from both teams combined, even though they played as recently as 2019. And for the Raptors, that's going to be Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet, who have emerged as the leaders of this team in the absence of Kyle Lowry and, Kawhi Leonard and Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka, these guys who people really knew from the last championship run, they have moved on to different teams. Whereas on Philadelphia's side, they have Joel Embiid and they have Tobias Harris. So there's really only four players who have a playing experience from dating back to the last time they played. And uh, a lot has changed for, for the Raptors, obviously. This is a new group. It's a younger group. They've changed their style of play as well. And... Um, you know, I think ultimately, though, the, the the ethos and the core ethos of what the Raptors do is is still the same. They're still extremely competitive. They play team basketball. There's not like one central star that everyone sort of just like uh, is second in line behind. The Raptors really play as a team and they really, really are very creative defensively. And that's why they have a good shot here. I don't want to dwell on the pandemic times because this is about looking forward. It's about uh, exciting basketball this weekend. But can you just explain, you touched on it by mentioning Tampa, but explain the long pandemic journey because it wasn't just Tampa. It was, you know, the follow-up to the title season, which was which was going great until the pandemic hit. And, uh, and then the journey started. What happened? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things have happened. Um, so as you mentioned, that year, following the championship, it was about defending the title. And even though they had lost the finals MVP in Kawhi Leonard, who had wanted to go to Los Angeles for a very long time and ultimately chose to do so when the opportunity came, the Raptors, even without their best player from the championship, still was one of the best teams in the NBA. In fact, they had the second best win percentage in the NBA that season, even without Kawhi and other pieces that had moved on and I, I think it was just such a shame because that group played with such a sense of pride such a sense of um uh competitiveness and you know it they they played with the swagger like they were champions which they were and the only sad thing is that they couldn't fully defend their title in the right way because of course you know mm-hmm. the pandemic happened and the NBA decided to 
bring all of the teams that were at least going to the playoffs into Disneyland, um, literally into Disneyland, into the uh, the ESPN bubble there. And, you know, it just was a very strange environment. And I think that there's a lot of other things that really went into it. The pandemic at that time, you know, I think for a lot of the players in the NBA, obviously this is a predominantly African-American league. I think a lot of these issues came uh, close to home when, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests were happening around that time as well. And right. there was just so much going on in the world that basketball felt very much like a secondary thing. And so they couldn't defend their championship successfully in that one. They lost to Boston in seven games. And then, of course, after that, the Raptors had to relocate to Tampa. So um, this has been like the first semi-normal year for the Raptors uh, since winning the championship. And I say semi because the Raptors have had to play 20 games without any fans in the building as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not necessarily been normal, but this is as close to normal as it gets. And the Raptors are, uh, you know, they're hoping to to continue it with a really good playoff run. Ultimately, what did that journey uh, result in? I guess in terms of players, uh, because obviously they, they acquired a couple of uh, new guys, but also just in terms of their identity as a team. I know we did a, a Blue Jays season preview on this show um, a few weeks ago, and one thing that kept coming up was, you know, uh, two years doing God knows what and and playing in different places that weren't your home and how it really bonded the team together. I'm assuming uh, the Raptors would say similar things. I think probably the Raptors are more transparent about how unpleasant it was. Hmm. This is no disrespect to Tampa or or even the bubble. I mean, the bubble was just very strange just in general. When you think about it, like it's, you know, obviously you're away from family and friends. It's, it's during a global pandemic. It was just really tough. And, you know, for a lot of these players, I mean, you know, people are social creatures and they're literally held in like one spot on one campus. Like it definitely is very uncomfortable for those guys. And even last year in Tampa, it was just odd. Um, I know I know for a lot of the players, you know, they didn't even get a chance to find uh, a comfortable place to rent. Right. Um, you know, a lot of them were living out of the hotel, which that became there was like a Marriott Hotel in Tampa. And that became like the home base for the Raptors. And they had uh changed the ballroom downstairs into uh, a practice court which as you can imagine like it's nowhere close to what the raptors have in toronto here at home the ovo practice facility where they have two beautiful courts and all these facilities available to them they go from that to like going and playing out of a ballroom where you don't want to shoot the ball too high because you might hit the chandelier um (laughs) it was quite frankly very uncomfortable for these guys and then of course on top of the fact that there were no fans in the building which you know, for a player, I think that there is a psychological effect to that. And quite frankly, when they did open the arena to some fans, it was like general NBA fans who were, I mean, not necessarily Raptor fans. And a lot of them were like Celtics fans or Heat fans or Orlando Magic fans. And it was very odd to sort of see that environment where you're quote unquote playing at home, but the, the team fans are actually cheering against you in a lot of instances. So, it, I mean, quite frankly, the Raptors are very, very happy to be back in, in Toronto. And it was to a degree where players would even mention in interviews, they missed driving on the DVP or they missed driving on the Gardener. Can you imagine missing? Yeah, that's when you know it's bad. Toronto traffic. So, yeah, they, they, they wanted to be home very badly. Tell me about how that season ended. Um, one of the things that that I've been surprised about is is maybe not completely openly, but at least semi-openly. Um People in the organization or at least around the team have talked about it as the Tampa tank and the fact that, you know, this team went from uh, chasing a repeat uh, NBA championship to missing the playoffs last year and 
And there was a silver lining to that. How, uh, how do they do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it was interesting because it was two things. Number one, it was a bit of a, a natural inflection point anyway. I think the Raptors had built this really good team. They won the championship. But then they also had a lot of old guys on that team that were eventually going to move on at some point. And the last one to leave the door was Kyle Lowry, who had been, you know, the central figure of Toronto's success for basically a decade. And, you know, he was celebrated in his return here recently to just a two-minute-long ovation. And he's been hailed as the greatest Raptor of all time, and rightfully so. But, you know... This is what happens in sports. You have generations of teams and you have generations of players. And the Raptors generation had gone old and guys were kind of moving on in their careers. So there was that that was already going to happen regardless of what happened in in, in going to Tampa. The other part was just the Raptors decided, well, there's no fans here. And Hmm. also our entire season got derailed because not only were they having to play down there to avoid um, the pandemic, but of course they were playing in Florida where the pandemic raged quite heavily. So the entire team right from the coaching staff to the to the players and assistants and everything like that, everybody got COVID for a month. So they didn't win a single game and it really killed their chances of competing that season. So they decided midseason, you know what, let's not overexert our, our existing guys. Let's give some of the younger players some opportunities to rest and let's try to go into the NBA lottery where um, the worst teams in the league are going to get the best odds at the, the best new players coming into the league. And thank goodness the Raptors did that because they were able to get Scotty Barnes, who is a 20-year-old rookie. He's a ball of energy. Quite frankly, he's a man-child. <laughs> he is like six foot ten and incredibly long and muscular. And he has been awesome for the Raptors to the point where he has started every single game he's been healthy, which is an extremely rare feat for a rookie. And also he is quite possibly the leading candidate to win rookie of the year this season. And that really only came about because the Raptors, as you mentioned, went into the Tampa tank. They had rested their key players and they made sure to lose as many games as possible so that they could at least come out of that painful season with something and turn out to be a great choice. Given all that, the way uh, that season ended, uh, Kyle Lowry departing in the summer, um, the Raptors getting Scotty Barnes, but what were the expectations back in August, September for this team? You know, two years removed from a title, but also one year removed from uh, bottom 10 in the league. I don't know if people had a good sense of what to expect from this team, but the people who did have expectations, it was lower than what the Raptors ultimately finished with. Consider this. So um, one way to sort of look at a consensus um, opinion on a team heading into the season is to look at, what Vegas has their season total uh, odds at, right? So they're going to try to set a line and try to get people to bet on this line. So they want to get this line as close to accurate as possible. Vegas had the Raptors at 36 wins. That's the prediction. The Raptors finished the year with 48. So that's 12 more wins. Um, it's it's it, it was a really nice season for Toronto. And I think even if you ask members of the Raptors organization, they were very intent on getting back into that winning way. They did not want to have a situation where they built up so much momentum in the organization. They won the championship. They're in the playoffs every year. And then they have a down year where they go to Tampa. They wanted to make sure that that was the exception, not the rule. And so they wanted to be competitive. But even them, they couldn't have known that with the amount of young guys in the team and sort of how much inexperience might factor in, um, they couldn't have known that they would turn around to the degree that it has. And I think that... That's been one of the reasons why the Raptors has been so fun this season. It, it, it's felt, in a way, like found money. Mm-hmm. 
2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. So for folks who are casual fans, uh, may have not been watching this entire year, what's so interesting about this team? How are they different from, uh, you touched on this at the beginning, from the typical NBA teams that we're used to seeing uh, in the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, you know, not to get too nerdy about basketball, but, you know, I think most people have a general idea of uh, how basketball is played, right? No, no, that's why we asked you here. Get nerdy. Oh, okay. Go Get nerdy. Okay, great. Okay, so... There's five players in each team, obviously. And generally speaking, you have players that are like slightly bigger among the five, right? It's almost like a like a Russian doll situation. You're just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to the center. The Raptors kind of decided that is outdated thinking. And what they're going to do is they're going to collect as many players as possible who are all like six foot nine with seven foot wingspans, these gigantic humans. And they're going to play all of them all at once. Now, usually um, teams don't do this, and teams usually go with sort of more specified roles for the five guys because, you know, that's just how basketball strategy has been. The point guard has the ball most of the time. They're going to decide where the ball goes to. The center is going to play in the paint. The power forward is probably going to play in the paint. Then you have some forwards on the outside. They maybe, you know, drive the ball, go in, or they shoot from the outside. The Raptors have basically said, we have five identical players at all times, and we're going to teach them all five positions, and they're going to essentially read and react. It's a very innovative way to play basketball it's not necessarily the most unique style considering that you know the Raptors didn't invent this style but I think they have really found a way to to build around this identity where it's hard to play against them they're very amorphous with how they present themselves and quite frankly I think it presents a lot of issues defensively for the other team in the sense that you don't know which guy is going to be taking the shot and you don't know which guy is going to be guarding you at all times and that is something that the Raptors have used to their advantage. And this is only year one of transition to a new style. I think you could probably expect even better results going forward. But as of right now, this identity of essentially issuing what is traditional basketball norms to play this new style of basketball has been, has been really fun because it's almost like watching a science experiment happen in real time. This is not the traditional basketball team that you would expect to see. So how does that match up then with a team like their first round opponent, the Philadelphia 76ers? And and how do you match up, I guess, against a team like the Raptors who aren't clearly aren't doing that? Yeah, well, I mean, th- that's a great question. And I think that that question is mostly answered by Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, who, you know, in addition to, um, I don't know, being a pianist, in addition to being a guitarist on stage with the Arkells, in addition to uh, getting his doctorate, you know, he's also a really, really smart coach. He's just really one of those people that even when you watch a ton of basketball and you see um, a lot of great coaches do what they do, I think Nick is so innovative and so unafraid to sort of try different strategies. And I think this is the perfect team for him to try those strategies against. Because if you look at it, in a traditional basketball game, the team with the biggest player, especially that big player can really score like the Philadelphia 76ers have in uh, who is likely to be, if not first for MVP, second for MVP in Joel Embiid. 
he is a traditional big man. He's seven foot two. He's really skilled. He can shoot the ball, and he's just physically more dominating than anybody the Raptors have. But the Raptors, maybe in fitting, you know, to their name as the Raptors, like they really swarm in packs, and they're really good at double teaming the ball and confusing the other team's offense. And that's something that really is a credit to Nick Nurse. I think that even if you try to plan against Nick, he often has two or three other counters up his sleeve. So. You know, when you watch the Raptors, too, it's not just like the players are really good, but they're being used in very creative and optimal ways. And sometimes you can go and use your quickness advantage, your length advantage to go up against a team that has the bigger player and has the bigger name in Joel Embiid. But the Raptors have played him really well. And even if they let Embiid score and do his thing, I think the Raptors have advantages elsewhere across the roster that they can impose. I know you've taken pains to say that this Raptors team doesn't have, you know, one of those alpha dogs, but I do want to ask you quickly about Pascal Siakam because his story is just uh, fascinating to me. This is a guy who was looking like he was going to grow into a superstar, signed a huge contract, transitioned to being seen by many as an overpaid bust after a, a year and a bit, maybe, and now... Uh, looking at the games we've seen recently down the stretch, looks like an MVP candidate again. Like, you followed this team the whole way. What the hell happened to him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting way to look at his career. Um, I mean, first off, the thing to know is that he came to basketball really late in his life. Uh, his family was going to set him up to to become a priest. And he went to seminary school and he decided sort of like, well, this is cool, but uh, maybe I'll try this basketball thing. And, and and so he got into basketball quite late in his life growing up in Cameroon. And, um, you know, I think from that point onward, he had sort of been on this like incredible trajectory to a guy new to the basketball to then playing overseas in America in college and not even playing his first year. He was a red shirt and then coming on and being a really great player and then getting drafted late in the in the, in the first round. Then the Raptors, you know, Send him to the developmental league, which is essentially the minors. And, um, you know, he won a championship down there. And then he came up with the Raptors. And he just kept on hitting these new marks. And there was, like, no stopping to his trajectory. And I think that the pandemic was something that really affected him more than a lot of players. I think that's where a lot of the criticism, as you mentioned, about Pascal came about. And really, you have to look at the circumstances there. So for a lot of players... In the NBA, they were able to go back to the to, to the U.S. because they were U.S. citizens or anything like that, and they were able to get back to the states, get back to their homes, and quite frankly, the the states opened up a lot faster, right, in terms of restrictions than the, than than Toronto did. So there are certain players that got stuck in Toronto for, as members of the Toronto Raptors, and all of them were were non-American players. Like Pascal Siakam is a Cameroonian player; he did not have a, a visa to go back to the states at that time, so he was stuck in Toronto. And he couldn't do anything. Like, I think it's like there's an idea that like NBA players are, um, they all live in lavish mansions and, you know, they have everything they need. I mean, they generally do have everything they need. They're incredibly fortunate compared to the average person, but there was no like court or anything for Pascal to access. And so I think that time off really did atrophy his skills in a way that probably other players were not affected by just because of the situation here in Toronto. And so when the NBA season started back up, he had been a very long time since he had actually engaged with basketball because he was, uh, you know, just shut down, quite frankly. And so when he played, as you can imagine, he looked really bad. And so uh, there was a lot of criticism about him, uh, about that. But 
I guess since the the world has sort of gone back to something closer to normal, it's not normal yet, but it's closer to normal. I think Pascal's been able to sort of um, train better. He also had shoulder uh, surgery in the offseason, which I think corrected a couple of issues for him. But mostly, he's been able to get back to his usual routine. And what we're seeing now is a continuation of what he did at the start of his career when he just kept winning more and more awards. He was the most improved player. He's a hard worker. And um, what we're seeing now is uh, a sense of resilience from him. And quite frankly, my impression is, having talked to him quite a bit, is just he seems like a more mature person as well. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, he, there is um, a period in life where he went through a lot of the criticism and it was very hard for him personally. And I think there was a lot of conflicting emotions. And I think he has settled down into a situation where he's less worried about what others say about him. And he's more worried about finding ways to to play with joy, but also just to carry himself with joy on a day-to-day basis. And I think you can see that with his interactions with the media. You can see that in the way he plays. He's no longer afraid to to make any moves that he wants to on the court. And I think he has been clearly the Raptors' best player this season. And so long as he continues to play the way he does right now, it, it's, it's shaping up to be a really nice redemption uh, campaign for Pascal Siakam. Here's the last thing I'll ask you as we kind of look forward to the playoffs and beyond. Um, first of all, what do you expect from the Raptors in these playoffs against the Sixers? But more importantly, you know, you mentioned this is kind of the first year of the new generation of this team. What does the future look like for them? That's a great question. And honestly, the NBA moves so fast. It's very hard to say what specifically will uh, things will go. Fair. But I think... Right now, what you're looking at is, um, you know, Fred and Pascal, Fred VanVleet and Pascal Siakam. These are the two leaders of the team. I think they're going to stay here. I think that that's going to be the basis of what they do. But so much of their future rides on Scotty Barnes, who, as we mentioned, 20 years old, a man-child. He's already playing really well. But I think there's a sense that he has this potential to become one of these great players that we look back on historically because of the fact that he's six foot ten, because of the fact that he has 12 inch hands, because of the fact that he's got like a seven foot three wingspan. He can go the full length of the court after ripping down the rebound and take three steps or three dribbles and, and dunk the ball on the other end. <laughs> there is something that's physically there that's so special for him. And he's a really nice passer that if he can hit his potential, I think that is the future of the Raptors as well, is that when you look at how can the Raptors get even better from here, it's really by improving the talent that they already have in a guy like Scotty Barnes. Will, thank you so much for this, and uh, let's go Raptors. be fun to watch this weekend. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be great. William Liu from Sportsnet, The Fan 590. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can, of course, find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. And you can email us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. It's as simple as that now. You can find us in your podcast player. You can find us on your smart speaker. Ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. And you can help your friends find us by telling them about this show. We will be taking an extra day off For the long weekend this weekend, there will be no show on Monday. We'll return on Tuesday with all sorts of new stuff. I promise. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Go Raptors. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk on Tuesday.